Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. I'm glad to have all of you with us today for Political Rewind. Thanks for being here for the show today. I'm Bill Nygut. We've got a lot to talk about, and we have a pretty good-sized panel to do it. So let's get right to the topics of the day. Uh, Kevin Riley, the editor of the AJC, is with us today. It's Tuesday. It's the day that he pops in to share his analysis of the news. How are you, Kevin? I'm good, and it's good to be here. You know, I missed last Tuesday, which I know. we'll talk about. We are going to talk about it. Last Tuesday, you were on The Hill, where you were testifying in front of a subcommittee uh, of the House Judiciary Committee. Well, we will talk about that as the show gets going. You good. look a little bit more... You've got you've got a certain stature about you today, having been on The Hill testifying. Really? Because I just feel a little more tired than usual, but okay. <laughs> Uh, your colleague, uh, Tamar Hallerman, who is the Washington correspondent for the AJC, joins us from Washington. Hi, Tamar. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's fun to talk to Kevin on the radio now, Yeah, month after the week after the hearing. <laughs> well, we'll get uh, to all of the things that you covered with him pretty soon in the show. Amir Faroki is here, city councilman for the city of Atlanta, represents the old Fourth Ward, and uh, we're glad to have you here. You, your big news, I suppose, in terms of your public uh, role, is y'all passed a city budget yesterday. We did. We passed uh, our budget fourteen to zero unanimously by by council members that the, the mayor's office had proposed. Uh, a little bit of haggling here or there on the edges, but uh, commend the mayor's uh, commitment to public safety and increasing salaries for police and fire and. Some more work to do there, but we're excited to have a budget pass. Right All right. Year. All right. Thanks for uh, sharing that with us. Dr. William Boone, a uh, political science professor at Clark Atlanta University, is back with us. Dr. Boone, how long have you been? You were a, you were a real veteran of Clark Atlanta. Yes, I was here before Dirt got here, but no. <laughs> no actually, um, at least three, 35 years, right? Yeah, so you have really watched things change on the political landscape in Georgia. You really have. I mean, over the last 35, 40 years, things have really changed. You know, moving straight from Democrats to Republicans and now to wherever we are, yeah, been big changes. Todd Ream is also here, Republican strategist. Uh, you may know him best of all for Georgia Pundit, his uh, daily... Uh, online newsletter about politics in Georgia. And Todd, I can't help but wonder if you, this, you know, in the last few minutes, uh, wished that the MARTA referendum had passed in Gwinnett County. Traffic was pretty hard coming down, huh? Traffic was difficult, <laughs> and, and that's the story of life in the big city. But uh, I've got a few tricks up my sleeve, including the frequent use of the Peach Pass. Oh, okay. There you go. <laughs> All right, let's get going. Uh, Tomorrow, I want to start with you, if I can, uh, because this is a big day for the President of the United States. We know uh, fairly soon he'll be making his way down to Orlando, where he's going to have a kickoff for his reelection campaign. Apparently, thousands of people are already lined up there to see the president. They've created a kind of a carnival atmosphere around it. They've got food trucks and uh, various kinds of entertainment. They've got some concerts happening out there. So uh, all that's happening, unfolding today. And meanwhile, tomorrow in Washington, uh, members of Congress are still trying to uh, iron out their disagreements over the issue of whether the president should be impeached. And you just filed a story on the interesting gap between candidates, Democratic candidates for congressional seats, and the incumbents uh, in terms of impeachment, right? Yeah, and, you know, it's worth saying that this has been bubbling up on the Hill for for months now. It, It definitely is the most consequential question facing House Democrats this year is it is it worth doing do they have a constitutional imperative as some of the proponents of impeachment say or could it ruin their chances at taking the presidency keeping control of the house is what their detractors say and i found that all five of georgia's incumbents the the democratic members of congress all of them are saying no we want more information before we launch any impeachment inquiry None, none of them have closed the door but they're all sticking with nancy pelosi whereas with a lot of the candidates running for u.s senate for the the open seventh district seat in the 13th district um you know a lot of them are ready to impeach yeah you've got uh uh 
everybody's saying a variation of what Sanford Bishop says, the incumbent Sanford Bishop down in the 2nd District. We need to get all the facts and expose the facts to the American people. At that point, we'll move on to the next stage if and when uh, that's merited. You quote him as saying, so Sanford Bishop, 2nd District down in Southwest, uh, Hank Johnson, the 4th District here in Metro Atlanta, John Lewis in the 5th, which is also Metro, Lucy McBath up there in the 6th. It is interesting to note, Kevin Riley, that McBath is uh, saying the same thing. We need to hear from the witnesses who can give the truth as to what actually happened. And uh, she says at the end of the day, the chips will fall where they may. Uh, so even Lucy McBath is uh, maybe... Of all of them, the one who faces the biggest challenge from a Republican, and so it may not be surprising that she's being very cautious about this. Right, and I also think, I mean, she's a freshman congresswoman, so uh, what's the upside to not falling in line with the speaker as a, as a, as a practical matter? And, uh, I mean, and again, I think that uh, I'll be interested to see what others think, but Nancy Pelosi, uh, there's no one has ever questioned her her political abilities. I don't think uh, whether they like her or not. But I mean, she knows that we we can the Democrats can keep talking about this, but in the end, impeachment would go nowhere in the Senate. You know, Todd, um, it's always interesting to hear this debate play out through the lens of Nancy Pelosi. So Pelosi, not long ago, made an interesting statement. She said, "We don't want." Uh, impeachment is not an inst- is not we don't want it to be an instrument of politics, but of course impeachment is an instrument of politics. So I, when Kevin says what's the upside, I mean the upside for some of these Democrats is that if they oppose impeachment, they're not going to rally the voters they want, energize their voters, aren't they? There was an interesting article in the New York Times on April 9th by Nate Cohen that uh, discusses, uh, and, and I think you can read that and read Tamar's article as being uh, describing the same phenomenon. It talks about the difference between progressivism dominating the discussion on Twitter of democratic politics versus what the real people in the real world who are likely to pull ballots are thinking. Um, that was where you see a difference between how Joe Biden uh, performs among progressive activists versus how he performs among among real voters. And that's the question that any person in either party has to think of themselves is how much do you have to cater to the extremes of your party who are the more outspoken ones, the ones likely to retweet what you said or, or to support you with small dollar donations uh, versus the r- real risk that you run if you get too far out in the extreme. Um, of alienating some of the moderate voters of your own party, not even to speak of swing voters, whether they exist or not. So, Dr. Boone, there is another case to be made here, of course. And that case is uh, made by those who favor impeachment, who say, look, they believe that the President of the United States has committed grievous acts of, uh, in some cases, illegality, uh, has not lived up to the oath of office, and they believe that there is an obligation from a moral point of view, uh, or even a legal point of view, given the power of the House to bring impeachment, uh, to do this without regard to the politics. Yeah, well, I think those particular individuals have to think in terms of what Pelosi is thinking about. You have politics and you have the Constitution. The Constitution speaks to the uh, power of the uh, House to bring impeachment, but Pelosi speaks to the idea that, look, we're in a very tight race, very uncertain as to whether or not we're going to maintain the House and certainly whether or not we're going to pick up enough seats in the Senate. So her thing is very practical. And, uh, and she's not dismissed the idea at some point, and she keeps dangling it out there, that at some point, maybe, Maybe, maybe when we return in, in, in a year and a half, we'll come back and do that. Amir, you want to weigh in? Sure. I, I don't have much to add to what's been said. I, I do think the question is, what's the end game here? I think if the end game is um, ousting the president from office, uh, Democrats are better off focusing on uh, 2020 and getting their candidates' messages out and with a vision for the future. I, I do have, uh, I guess, a respect for the principal argument, um, which is we have a duty to investigate. Congress has this duty, um, which they are undertaking. Uh, but I, I think, by and large, um, the majority of Americans are not in favor of impeachment process. It's going to consume the next year and a half when we get into it. Uh, and Democrats in the country will be better off if we focus on, on the election. Um, tomorrow, you quote Teresa Tomlinson as saying, the actions in the Mueller report fall within the scope of high crimes and misdemeanor and warrant an impeachment inquiry. 
And, and she goes on to say, Congress has the duty to investigate now. If the hearings reveal grounds of impeachment, Congress must proceed in a timely manner. Um, and the other candidates out there uh, who are seeking office share similar thoughts about this, right? Yeah, with the exception of Carolyn Bordeaux in the yeah. 7th District, who, yeah. who, cl- who came close to winning last year. But it's worth noting kind of the, the motivations of these people, right? Um, for a lot of these candidates, they're, they're running in, in what is expected to be very crowded primary battles, where often your base voters, your very progressive Democrats, are going to be driving that enthusiasm and, you know, turning out in theory, um, you know, for them. So, so you want to stick out to those people. For somebody like Lucy McBath, who's running on, on what's called a frontline district, which means one of the most competitive battlegrounds that Republicans are trying to take. It's a very different story. All right. We're going to watch how that plays. I mean, we don't know where we're headed with this exactly, Kevin, but I, I do think that there is going to be a moment when impeachment becomes uh, a moot point, isn't there? I mean, you can't get, say, to next spring. You can't get to the beginning of the primary season and begin to talk about impeaching the president without uh, clearly being accused of playing a very, very partisan game. You're already going to be accused of partisan, partisanship as it is, but moving closer and closer to election day, isn't that a bigger problem? Right. I, I would say that it is. And, and, you know, people, a lot of people want to point toward Watergate and, and, and make some comparisons. But the timing is very different in this case. And also, if you watch what's going on, you really have to wonder if the president's almost trying to goad the Democrats into doing this because he feels like the timing would help him. Uh, in the election because, uh, you know, the one argument for opening impeachment proceedings is that then there's not this fight about uh, the subpoenas and the information that the different House committees are seeking, that 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 information would flow in an impeachment proceeding. But if you look at the timing, uh, it might just be a strategy by Trump to to continue to defy the committees, hoping that Democrats will will open impeachment. So, Todd, is there a window that's going to close at a certain point? And is the president, in fact, uh, seeing this as a useful weapon in a re-election campaign if he is impeached? I, I think the idea that Donald Trump might be goading somebody is, uh, <laughs> is, 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 is this is not the Far first time fetched. that's, that's yeah. been, that's come up. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I think he, do, he does have a... An, He's got a unique sense of political timing um, and a unique sense of what benefits him as a candidate, and it's hard to it's hard to double uh, to to uh, to second guess that. But I do think that as a political matter, um, you get to the point where, at the very least, you're talking about something that will, by definition, at a certain time point be something that cannot be disposed of by the sitting Congress, but yeah. by the next Congress, yeah, that's exactly um, especially, right. especially given that they're likely to be uh, taking off time for the campaign season. And so, yes, that window is closing, but I don't think that that window closing will mean that, that the Democrats who are uh, strongly advocating for the impeachment process uh, will stop talking about it. And I don't think that an actual impeachment, impeachment process beginning means there's any less substantive or procedural fighting over things like subpoenas information because you still do have a legitimate uh, separation of powers question between the executive functions which are clearly those that uh, especially when you're talking about things within the uh, Department of Justice and the legislative functions. So that's an important point. Really you made two points I want to expand on for just a sec. Number one, you if, if Donald Trump wins re-election um, Amir, you cannot imagine having just in 2021 being sworn in for a second term with the American people, or at least in the states that give him the electoral ma- uh, 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 college majority, uh, decide to bring him back to office. The notion of a Democratic Congress proceeding with the impeachment at that point could lead to just open warfare. I mean, this could be a, that could be a terrible situation. But the other thing that Todd said that's even more relevant, I think, is whether Democrats feel that the impeachment process is the only thing that will enable them to get to the kind of information they've uh, been subpoenaing uh, White House associates for. They haven't gotten Trump stonewalled them uh, through everything. At least the impeachment would give them a chance to get at some of the things they're looking for. Sure, and I think that's that's a compelling argument for impeachment if you're a Democrat wanting to get to the bottom of this or an American wanting to get to the bottom of this. Um, 
But I, I, I do think that there is there is a cost to the impeachment process. Um, I, I kind of look at it. I'm a, a former litigator, and you know, you, and one reason I'm not a litigator is because anymore is you would get into these cases where you have both sides on opposite sides of things, um, who kind of enter this fever pitch battle. But from the very start, you can kind of see where it's going to settle, and you know what the end outcome is. But for years, you know, you scratch tooth and nail over this document or that document, trying to get someone in front of a judge to um, to get a deposit, whatever it may be. Uh, and I feel like that's what this is going to be all-consuming. It's going to tear our country apart in ways that we don't need. Um, and there's, a, I think, a, a higher calling that all Americans are looking for in this, which is articulate a vision for the future, whether you're President Trump or one of the Democratic candidates. Um, and let's let's move forward. And, and I think Amir makes a great point about the, there there is a mindset that you develop. A, it's a tunnel vision uh, once you're in some kind of a, of a conflict. It happens in litigation. It happens in campaigns. Um, it happens, uh, frankly, on the uh, seven- to eight-year-old football field uh, among the parents where it becomes a win-at-all-costs mentality. And it's very hard to step back from that once you have become complete, very invested in the process of beating your opponent no matter what. So, Dr. Boone, uh, the president heads to Orlando, and already this morning, uh, the Orlando Sentinel has published its non-endorsement of the 2020 presidential race. They say this, we're here to announce our endorsement for president in 2020, or at least who were not endorsing Donald Trump. Some readers will wonder how we could possibly eliminate a candidate so far before an election and before knowing the identity of his opponent, because there's no point pretending we would ever recommend that readers vote for Trump. They say, after two and a half years, we've seen enough, enough of the chaos, the division, the schoolyard insults, the self-aggrandizement, the corruption, and especially uh, the lies. Uh, that's uh, quite a, uh, an editorial greeting, the president. Yeah, it certainly is. I mean, they're trying to get ahead of the parade. <laughs> do, you, do you think there is going to be such a parade? Yeah, I think I think that a good many of, even on the conservative elements, uh, more moderate conservatives, such as Corn, phrase and Corn, in terms of trying to push Trump into the presidency, I think we all know that Republicans have, in a way, shot themselves in the foot in a certain way by not uh, opposing certain of the uh, Trump uh, suggestions of the Trump proposals. But at the same time... By not pushing back. Yeah, pushing back. I mean, I think someone described it at one time as the Republican Party, especially those in the U.S. Congress, have no vertebrae. Uh, that, that's a problem. But it's a problem also from a very policy point of view as well in terms of the kinds of policy that have come out. Now, when one thinks about Trump and one thinks about the Orlando Central coming out so early... It, it, I think it feeds into the idea that we all know that Florida is a state in place, so to speak. And so what we're going to get is a good many of these people beginning to jump out front and say, look, anybody but Trump, but, they're quite, but, the, but the problem for them becomes who within the Democratic fold are they going to endorse, if anyone at all. Because at the moment, the Democratic thing is just very, very wild. Yeah. Very Kevin wild. Riley, I thought about you immediately as the editor of the Atlanta paper when I saw this editorial. Um, you know those folks down there? And can you imagine why they went ahead and did this uh, on, on the day the president's announcing? No, I actually don't know anyone in Orlando, and I'm not sure what they were thinking. I could only guess at it. I mean, I think the important point is, I mean, there's a reason why the president is in Orlando to kick off this campaign, right? I mean, there's no more important state than Florida for him. It's, I think that it's pretty easy to see that without a win in Florida, it would be hard in his electoral map to get, to get reelected. I would, you know, the only thing I would say is if he doesn't use that as fodder to fire up his base and others today, I would be surprised. And, um, you know, you really have to ask whether it's going to change anyone's mind. Um, generally, generally, they do not. <laughs> right. So, uh, Tamar, uh, we have seen the, the, this whole story unfold about the president's internal polls being leaked late uh, last week, or maybe it was the beginning of this week. Time goes so quickly in politics these days, um, in which the internal pollsters say that the president is having a hard time. He's behind in battleground states in the Midwest to Joe Biden. 
Um, and he's behind in Florida by six or seven points, according to the internal polls of the Trump campaign. The president said it was a fake poll and uh, then fired three of the pollsters who were involved in the fake poll. So I'm curious, you know, where, where and then Joe Biden, let's do this before I even turn to you. Then Joe Biden yesterday in South Carolina, speaking to a group of African-American leaders, said this. First of all, I plan on campaigning in the South. I plan, and if I'm your nominee, winning Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, believe it or not. And I believe we can win Texas and Florida, if you look at the polling data now. Doesn't mean it's a, it's a marathon. It's a long way off. Maybe the most important words in that sentence tomorrow were, it's a marathon, it's a long way off. I, I would also note that that uh, part of the long way off is the distance between the microphone and Donald Trump and his unfiltered thoughts about Joe Biden. And we have seen politicians leading before they have announced, leading before a campaign has really engaged, um, who start to crater when you start talking about the downside of their policies, the downside of their personal history. And I think that uh, there are folks at this table who are at least as uh, aware as I am of the danger of taking a poll done even three hours before an election as predictive of what's going to happen in that in that election. Yeah, I think that's right. I think we all have to be very, very skeptical of these early polls. At the same time, tomorrow, uh, Joe Biden throws down a marker. He says, I'm going to compete in South Carolina. I'm going to compete in Georgia and Texas. And of course, he's going to compete in Florida because of its importance uh, in the election. But it's interesting that Biden, at least at this point, is saying, I'm going after Southern voters. Yeah, exactly. And it'll be interesting to see how much time he ends up spending in the state. He was down here earlier this month fundraising and um, attending, I believe it was the I Will Vote Gala or, yep. or some sort of fundraising event. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how much more he comes down here. Um, you know, so fascinating about these internal polls that were leaked is that, you know, it had Biden winning Georgia by six points and South Carolina by a few points, too. And South Carolina hasn't voted for a Democrat for president since the 70s, maybe, and Georgia hasn't voted for a Democrat since Bill Clinton in 92. So, um, you know, that would be really fascinating. But kind of kind of going off of what, what Todd was saying, you know, first of all, Trump hasn't truly, tra you know, trained his fire on one candidate yet. I think when he has that kind of clear picture of who it's going to be, it'll be a very different story in terms of his social media messaging. And it could be really damaging to Biden or whoever it will be. But also, I mean, things like the economy could change a ton between now and Election Day. And that could have a bigger impact than anything else. But Amir... Uh, Biden is making a very strong statement. Let's talk about it just in terms of Georgia. We do think Georgia is in play in 2020. We do think a Democrat has the potential to win the state. It may not be Joe Biden. Uh, but what are your constituents telling you over there in the old Fourth Ward? You're right in the heart of a pretty liberal uh, district, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, I represent downtown Midtown, old Fourth Ward, and then Park, Candler Park. I think uh, in the 2016 election, uh, Hillary, the, the worst that Hillary Clinton did in your precinct was about 86, 88 percent. So I live, at, I represent a very progressive liberal part of the city. Um, I, I think another thing that um, Vice President Biden said in that that's worth noting was the quote, if I'm the nominee. Uh, and I'd, I say that as, um, as someone who likes Joe Biden. I think the Democratic field is incredibly strong. I personally have endorsed Pete Buttigieg, mayor of South Bend, Indiana. Um, uh, I think he's uniquely qualified for the moment in a number of ways. We don't need to get into that. But uh, this, the plus six in Georgia for Biden in that poll, I think is indicative of a, a lot of Americans, um, Republican or not, who um, don't identify with the brand of Donald Trump's politics or leadership. And so there's, there's an open question on, you know, what type of leadership do we want in the country? Um, who is best uh, situated to, to fill that role? And, and who has a vision for something that's more hopeful and tangible than what we feel right now? So I want to ask some of our uh, better political minds, Bill, because when I heard that from Biden for the first time, two things went through my head. The first was a message he was sending that I will ignore no state because if Hillary Clinton learned anything in the last election, you know, don't count on anything and don't don't ignore key states. And then I wondered about him just the, the realities of, if look, if I can make a, a state like Georgia 
reasonably competitive so that the that Donald Trump has to spend a lot of money and spend a lot of time here that may create problems in other places but I mean I've never run a campaign I've only observed them what what do you guys think Todd? about that I, I think that today any serious candidate has to say they're not going to make the mistakes that their predecessor is can is considered to have made but as you get closer as we start talking about actual campaign budgets both for dollars and for the candidates time things will change um, and Hillary Clinton never said I'm going to this is the list of states I'm going to ignore she just went ahead and did it or is thought to have done that um, what one of the points that's been made in the on the Facebook uh, feed is that some folks saying that uh, Biden might need an African-American uh, partner on his ticket uh, in the Deep South and the fact that he was talking about uh, about Stacey Abrams as a potential uh, means that a, he, he's not just thinking in terms of the demographics of that, but in terms of who can ramp up the enthusiasm. And Stacey Abrams is a, is a, uh, she's a proven enthusiasm creator among the Democrats. And he's also perhaps thinking of somebody who can be a surrogate for him in those states that he thinks are important, but they might not have the resources either in terms of the candidate's time and attention or the money to do himself. So he wouldn't pick Kamala Harris. If, if he were to get the nomination, she would be a poor choice because California is a sure thing sure for him, thing. right? Ex exactly. I think, I think uh, Gillum from Florida might be in consideration. I think Stacey Abrams might be in consideration. I think that there are a lot of promising young African-American politicians in, on the Democratic side um, that that anybody in the Democratic Party would be foolish to not think of, not just in terms of are they presidential caliber, because that's got to be part of the calculus for choosing a, pre a vice presidential can candidate, but can they create that enthusiasm in the deep south states uh, where a lot of the Democratic uh, vote lies among African-American so, voters that a Stacey Abrams did or that a Barack Obama did when he was at the top Dr. of the ticket? Dr. Yeah, well, yeah. one of the things you have to think about, though, is that the Democrats, up until about Obama, had ignored the South for a long time. I mean, the Democratic Party running. I mean, it's only within the last uh, couple of presidential races that you've gotten the Democrats coming in. I mean, other than Florida. Right? Yeah, Florida, yeah, Florida. Yeah. Florida's one of those aberrational kind of things, right, right? right? Because of the population of Florida and who populates that and who votes in Florida. It, it comes off a little differently. But, but what, what we see, though, is that the Democrats now, since Obama, Although Obama did it in a kind of way I think was not quite as intense as it should have been if he was intended to win, but he didn't win anyway. But, but what we're talking about here is to bring the fight to the Republicans because the Democrats had conceded states like South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, and on down that 11 Confederate span. They had conceded those and thinking that they could win with their, with their California, the Pennsylvania, the Michigan. They think, thought they could win didn't work. The algorithms that they were putting in place were algorithms that really, really were not coming into fruition. And, and that, I mean, they were, t they were algorithms informed by maybe past performances that were not in play during Clinton's run. All right. Uh, you get the last word on that. We got to get to a break. I'm late on this already. So let's take a break for a moment and we will be back with more Political Rewind after these messages. Hey, this is David Green, host of Morning Edition. I'm here to talk with you about that poking feeling, the one that keeps reminding you to support public radio. You can support the programs you love by donating your used vehicle. That old car or truck could be worth hundreds of dollars to this station. All you have to do is call, and you might even receive a tax deduction. Go to gpb.org slash cars or call 877-GPB-1-CAR and thanks. This summer, we'll be examining an ambitious goal. By mid-century, we must be carbon neutral. Zero carbon emissions by 2050. What does carbon neutral mean exactly, and what does achieving that involve? I'm Ari Shapiro. Join us as we kick off our exploration of getting to zero carbon. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. 4 till 7 today on GPB and online at gpbnews.org. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Todd, I want to start with you on this because you are a political strategist here in the state. And so I'm curious how you uh, look at the announcement we got from Brad Raffensperger just uh, yesterday. We've been wondering for really weeks and weeks now 
when he is going to set a date for Georgia's presidential primary, uh, as you well know, we have always voted early here. In the first weeks, a couple of weeks of March, the presidential primaries have taken place. Raffensperger said yesterday that we may not, we're not going to set a date until we have the new machines in place, which presumably could push our primary back months. It could be June before Georgians vote. And, it, and I, the reason I wanted to start with you on this is we know if you're going to not get your place in line until June, how little impact your state is likely to have on the selection of a nominee, in this case, of course, in the Democratic Party. I, I would say, first of all, that um, that I've known Brad for several years, and I, and I know him pretty well, and one of the things to understand about him is that he comes from an engineering background and a business background, and he's very process-oriented, um, which at times makes him not the most exciting person talking about uh, political processes, but it, it he's very invested in the idea that competence in his job is a core function of political leadership. And so I, I think he's being cautious just from a just from the fact that that's where his personality is, and that's what uh, what his years of professional training and experience have taught him. The other part of it, though, is that we have seen uh, how elections processes in Georgia came under such great scrutiny uh, during the 2018 election and and continuing to this day, and that he's uh, sort of taking a suspenders and belt approach that um, that I think is reasonable from a process point of view, but will strike some folks as politically risky. Um, I think in Georgia we have a lot to to be thankful for. Uh, to for Brian Kemp, frankly, in the SEC primary of 2016, which brought a, a lot greater attention, more more visits by presidential candidates than I had seen in my entire previous well, career. Since in politics. 1992, we saw that kind of thing because what Zell Miller did, which we can talk about in a minute. But yeah, that's right. right. Kemp was one of the guys who said, let's vote early with other southern states so we can draw some attention. And, and when you remember that we're talking about thousands of voting precincts and thousands of people to be trained and 159 or more uh, voting boards and officials to, to get trained, it really is a huge lift to get these machines online. Absolutely. It Nevertheless, Amir does change the dynamics of what happens in a Georgia primary. So you said a few minutes ago that you've already endorsed uh, Pete Buttigieg. And, um, you know, you never know how a primary season is going to play out. But presumably, by May, we have a fairly good idea of who the nominee is going to be in either party when they're contested uh, primaries. If If it's true that we're not going to vote until, you know, way late in the process... It strikes me that it's less important for your candidate, Pete Buttigieg, to spend any time in Georgia at all. He's going to front load. He's going to go to those states that are front loaded and try to win there. And and it changes the strategy entirely for for any candidate. Yeah, that's an excellent point, Bill. I, I think that if we maintain an early um, uh, primary position on the calendar, uh, we'll continue to continue to see candidates come through the state, talk to voters. Uh, 23 candidates is a lot to, to filter through, and I, I think um, Georgia is a state that's demographics are important if you're going to become the nominee, um, and so you want to prove yourself here, and this is a state that's in play. Um, I'll also note, I think that changing the date, um, though you could la- rely on process as a way to excuse it, um, could play into the narrative, the continued narrative that uh, you know our election system is not as... Um, reliable and set in stone as we'd like it to be coming off of last year's um, gubernatorial election in which there was some question as to the integrity of the elections. And I, and I also think it's worth noting, look, there is there is not high confidence in uh, going back to computers for, for polling, right? And I, whatever you want to say about the security election system, look, the Russians um, were able to use you know, internet and computer infrastructure to influence our elections. And I, I would think without a paper ballot um, and a verifiable paper trail, um, Georgians will continue to to question whether our elections are as secure as they should be. So, uh, you know, just to take a little bit of what Amir said even further, I know I'm sure people listening and people who would hear this or read that story today, you know, they might view it cynically as, oh, it's politics, who knows what's going on, and, you know, I'm not going to be interested in that. But I, here's what I think is important. Georgia, because it's going to get more and more in play in big 
presidential elections is going to be a really important state. And if we don't position ourselves in the primary to be absolutely crucial to a candidate in terms of its timing and winning the state, I just don't think it helps us in the long run because you know, people are going to want to win Georgia, and as part of winning Georgia, they're going to want to do a lot of things for Georgia over time. So, to me, that's the bigger risk, is that we're seeing as not just having, a, you know, maybe not having the most reliable election system, but somehow just not taking the chance, taking our opportunity to be such an important state. Tamar, uh, you were just a child when this happened, but in the, in the winter of 1991, Governor Zell Miller told a number of us who covered him that he was going to come back in the January session of the Georgia General Assembly, January 92, presidential election year, and ask the legislature to vote to move the Georgia primary forward to the very beginning of the process. Why did he want to do that? Because his friend Bill Clinton, he recognized, might not come out of Iowa and New Hampshire as strong as he needed to be. And if he moved the Georgia primary to follow New Hampshire almost immediately, he could re-energize the Clinton campaign. And that is exactly what happened, and it propelled Clinton to the nomination. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's right about that, Bill. Yeah. She's well, right about William, that. Boone, William Boone was nodding. He remembers it well. Yeah, we certainly do, because that certainly put a different light on, on Clinton's, uh, Clinton's run. It really did. It helped him push him forward. And one brings it to the contemporary period, uh, the, the fact that the Georgia Secretary of State is really not doing the Democrats any favor uh, of those candidates who are running. And I think those folks who are probably on the, as, as some folk have called me, on the A, on the B list, uh, will appreciate an earlier, earlier run. But we're not going to get it, Todd. I mean, clearly. And maybe for Raffensperger, you made a great case for why he is being cautious about this. I, I, I'm not, has he said that it will not be uh, on, on that date, or has he just said that he hasn't set the, the date? He says he yet. hasn't set the date, but it, it, he also acknowledges it could come later. And, and so, so that, that's one thing, is, is that we're talking about something as though it's a, it's, it's a gimme and it's, it's not quite there yet. The other thing that I would say is that this idea that uh, a state's importance is based solely on, the, on where it comes in the, in the voting uh, is kind of an outdated idea from the days that it used to be all broadcast all the time at the presidential election level. Nowadays, particularly looking back to the, the Stacey Abrams campaign, you can see that what she was doing in the primary and, frankly, in 2016 and 14 before that uh, was as important a part of her general election strategy as anything because the the current thinking requires a great deal more uh, personal one-on-one contact and a lot more data collection through that one-on-one contact. And so part of winning Georgia in November of 2020 is going to be building those lists, building those organizations, building the momentum, and putting the trained boots on the ground to, to pull off that kind of a campaign. And that requires, I think, an effort in the Georgia primary, even if it's a month after the SEC the rest of the SEC primary states and Super Tuesday and all so that. So people just can't can't ignore Georgia. It's part of what you're saying. If I mean. if you think that Georgia's in play in 2020, you've got to be on the ground from today through November of 2020, and that means a lot of resources being expended in ways that are not quite as visible as uh, broadcast television buys. Certainly, Georgia will be in play. There's no doubt about that. I mean, the change in demographics of the state indicate that. What Stacey Abrams did, of course, helped that. What Clinton did in the presidential race, what Obama did, picking up 43 to 45% of the popular vote, all of those point to Georgia being in play for the Democrats. All right, let me just uh, uh, finish this part of the conversation before mm-hmm. we get to break and say this. Uh, Secretary, this comes from an article in the AJC, uh, Mark Nisi and uh, Greg Bustein. Uh, uh, co-authored this. Secretary of State Raffensperger is holding off on declaring the 2020 primary date until the government completes its $150 million purchase of new statewide equipment, likely in July. Uh, and uh, Gordon Futures is quoted as saying, she's the uh, uh, Deputy Secretary of State, until a vendor has been chosen, until a specific implementation plan is designed to distribute Georgia's new machines, we will not set a date for the 2020 presidential primary. Nisi and Bluestein suggest that could make us 
put us off until the very end of the process. Let's do this. Let's get another uh, a break out of the way. And when we come back, uh, I want to talk about Kevin Riley and his day on Capitol Hill. And so we're going to get you into this conversation about that tomorrow. And we're going to hear why you were up there, Mr. Riley. You're listening to Political Rewind. On the next Fresh Air, the story of America's first black sports hero, Major Taylor. He broke racial barriers by becoming the world's fastest and most famous cyclist at the height of the Jim Crow era. Our guest will be Washington Post investigative reporter Michael Cranish, author of a new book about Taylor called The World's Fastest Man. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB and online at gpbnews.org. I'm Pam Bauer. I'm director of brand development for Callaway Resort and Gardens in Pine Mountain, Georgia's authentic outdoor getaway and escape. We underwrite with GPB because we know that the listeners are very motivated, enthusiastic, and educated. We know that we are going to be able to touch a wide array of people who are curious and and will want to learn more about Callaway. So it's a perfect fit. To find out more about becoming a corporate sponsor, email sponsorship at gpb.org. Blew my mind when I was. We're back on uh, Political Rewind. Todd Ream, uh, his mind blown by seeing David Brooks at Peachtree Presbyterian Church talk about a second life, living a larger uh, a life, which we talked about with him on the show a while back. And I actually got a free copy of the book at the <laughs> at the speech, and it, it impressed me so much that I was going to bring it to you, but then I heard that interview, and you had clearly read it already. Yeah, right. Uh, Tamar and Kevin, let me start with you, Tamar. Last week, your boss, Kevin Riley, last Tuesday, went to Capitol Hill to testify at a subcommittee of the Judiciary Committee. To make things simple, what exactly is that subcommittee doing? They're, they're vetting a bill that relates to newspapers and their bargaining power with the big digital giants. Tell us just a little bit about it. Sure, let me put it into context first. This comes at a time when all of these tech giants like Facebook, Google are under an increasing amount of, um, you know, Washington is finally taking an interest to them. They, they've been, you know, Congress has been very hesitant to regulate a lot of these tech companies over the last few years. But given what happened in the election um, with Russian actors being involved, given a lot of the privacy concerns, Congress is finally starting to look at antitrust issues related to these massive companies. This, this bill that's being sponsored by Doug Collins, a Georgia Republican, and David Cicilline, a Rhode Island Democrat, would provide a four-year reprieve from federal antitrust laws, basically allowing newspapers to band together. So as they negotiate with Facebook and Google, maybe they can get uh, better terms in terms of uh, how their content is displayed, how much ad revenue they get. Kevin Riley, I was never even aware, or I think a lot of our listeners weren't, uh, that there was a negotiating process for these uh, uh, tech platforms to use your content. Right. Well, so the way that it works is the antitrust laws actually protect Facebook and Google from us, if you can believe that. And when people see our, our stories, say, on Facebook, uh, they, a lot of people assume that Facebook is paying for access to that content, and in fact, they're not. And uh, so this is an effort for newspapers to sort of band together and, and make the case that uh, there really ought to be a different system, because what's happening is uh, a local newspaper like the AJC invests in news coverage, which is expensive, and then again, garners a very large audience, but in fact doesn't reap the financial rewards of that audience, thereby preventing us from investing in more news coverage. So you were one of half a dozen people who testified, but I will say that one of the reasons I think it's really worth talking about today is that when you get underneath what this legislation would do, you really got to the heart of this issue, which is the survival of local newspapers in a time when the competition has become overwhelming. Uh, I want to play just a little bit of your testimony from last Tuesday and then let you talk about it. He's saving America. He loves this country. He loves us. No, he loves wrong, us like family. Wrong clip. Why don't, that I do love s- this country, just for the record. <laughs> and you're saving uh, America. Here, come, here comes Kevin Riley testifying last week. Almost always the debate about media and tech is framed within a discussion of international news brands. But the greatest peril for our nation lurks at the local level. 
where a regional or community newspaper must cope with fast-changing technological and financial matters. We're the ones who are concerned with our communities, their government, and their well-being. Our staffs live in our community. They have a big stake in informing the public. Social media and technology companies have enormous influence on the distribution and availability of news. But we should be worried about losing newspapers, the fountainheads within the local news ecosystem. It is worth considering stories that would go untold. And Kevin, as you testified, you uh, told the members of the committee some of the stories that you're proudest of that you say reflect what a local news organization can, can do for its own community. Right. I mean, one of the stories I talked a lot about, of course, was the uh, Atlanta Public Schools cheating scandal, which is a very painful story for our community. But what, what I wanted to emphasize was a couple points with them. The first, of course, was uh, no one else could really do that story in, in this community. It's the kind of story a newspaper would uniquely do. And the other thing is uh, people sometimes lose sight of this. We, we went at that story and stuck with it for five years. And that's another thing about newspapers where you really persist with stories and you have the institutional knowledge. And so it's inter it was interesting being in front of the committee because uh, the Republicans and Democrats sort of agree on this thing. I mean, they, they come at it from, I think, slightly different places based on their own experiences and their points of view. But there was a lot of, uh, a lot of interest. And I also think that part of that is um, a politician likes to have that local newspaper in their district, that, that, that paper where they can run an op-ed or they know the reporters and stuff so when they come to town, they can highlight the issues that yeah. they care about. Amir, I know the, the Atlanta Constitution sometimes uh, is you know criticized by the business community, by, by public officials, because they can be pretty tough in the way they report stories about our community. Um, but I would think that if you're a local political leader, as you are, you need the local paper. Yeah, I couldn't agree with Kevin Moore. You know, I've, I've spent a little bit of time thinking about how do you build public trust and strengthen democracy. And you know, on one on one side of it, I think we we have to government has to bend over backwards to better engage citizens, and that's that's one piece of it. Um, but the other piece is is maintaining a healthy fourth estate, maintaining a healthy press, and at the local level, um, you know, the AJC and, and other media outlets locally. This is who, who looks into the nooks and crannies of, of, of what happens at City Hall, what happens in the school system, what happens at our transit agencies. And, you know, I shudder to think about um, if, if the AJC and others can't properly staff and report, um, who's going to cover the stories that in, uh, report on, on what we're doing at the city? And that it's not going to be the New York Times, it's not going to be the Wall Street Journal, it's not going to be the Huffington Post. Um, and so we need local press, whether it's a big market, me medium market, or small market. And so um, I, I commend Kevin and the AJC for speaking up on this and taking the, the opportunity to, to push the issue. And I hope um, we have a robust uh, press at, at all levels of our uh, democracy because it's, it's part of what keeps us a strong democracy. Todd, jump in. I, I think that most politicians' appreciation of their local newspaper depends in part on the tone and temperament of the gentleman <laughs> occupying the, the big seat at the head of the table. Um, and, and I'll say that, I, that when people ask why I still pay for the AJC, um, my answer always begins and ends with the APS uh, stories and the fact that there was nobody else who could or would do it. Um, but I have a, a quick question about, has, have there been any discussions within the industry for what does this look like? Is there a large association that would represent all, the, all of the papers? Or would you be trying to, to, to get a deal with uh, folks like the, the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times who, who have a, re, a, a, a much, national oh, yeah. readership right, and, right. And, and sort of leverage them? Well, let me, let me begin by saying, of course, I made clear that I wasn't there to advocate or to direct policy or anything like that. I was simply adding to the information and the background that I, that I feel like the members of Congress and that subcommittee need as they proceed with, with this issue. But one of the witnesses was the CEO of the News Media Alliance, which, rep which is the trade organization for newspapers. And the idea here is that somehow working with Congress and, and regulators a a group could could cut a deal that works for newspapers generally because it's one thing for the New York Times to call up Facebook and say hey we we need to talk about our arrangement it's a whole other thing for the Savannah Morning News to try to do that so the idea is that 
big regional papers can play a role like us, and ultimately uh, a, a deal could be put together that serves everybody. But we're we're a little ways off from that, and I'm reluctant to push anything because as a working journalist, it's kind of the business I want to stay out of. You know? Dr. Boone, I think you and I, it's fair to say, are probably the oldest people in the room. I grew up in a town in Chicago. We had four daily newspapers, and we did well into my adult years before I moved down here. Yeah, yeah you're right, because where I grew up in Virginia, we had at least two or three in the area that I lived in outside the Washington, D.C. area, quite a few newspapers, and particularly local newspapers and small community papers. I argue here that to, to diminish the role of local papers is to diminish democracy because what you're going to do is begin to filter information through one or two major monopolies, and that's going to cause problems. I mean, we can see what's happening now in terms of technology being able to manipulate. I mean, where else could Atlanta found out about what was going on in City Hall <laughs> in the last administration? How could we have learned about what's happening in DeKalb County without local newspapers? Those are the kind of things that help civil society continue, and we cannot do it without local papers. All right. Um, one quick question. I'm going to make the rounds. You've got about 20 seconds to answer it. The president will speak in Orlando tonight. He expects at least 20,000 people Tamar Hallerman, on prompter or ad-libbing? Oh, ad-libbing. <laughs> that, is, that is Trump being Trump, and, and I don't see him sticking to a teleprompter. Amir, this is a big speech. He's got to get some messaging points across. On prompter or ad-libbing? Ad-libbing, and I'll be surprised <laughs> if there's 20,000 people there. Oh, okay. <laughs> Kevin? <laughs> well, I, I think he'll, he'll ad-lib, but the, to me, the more interesting thing will be... Uh, who and what he directs his sharpest attacks at, like which Democratic candidate? I'm, I'm going to predict a 50-50 mix, but I will also say that uh, on the Republican side, all of our local parties seem to be setting up watch parties, yeah. and, and the party is much more uh, unified in their support of Trump than they were uh, in 2016 or that than I've ever seen for a Republican president. And so it's going to be interesting. Uh, it would be interesting to have reporters at some of those venues to see what, what their reactions the are. The very point that Robert Jimison made in a news me our GPB news meeting this morning. Thank you for uh, reiterating that. Dr. Boone, on script or not? He's never on script. <laughs> He'll be ad-libbing all the way. Maybe okay. about five minutes. I think he will be as on script as we have ever seen him in front of a rally crowd because he knows that there are certain things, points he has got to start making if he wants to win re-election. But I agree with all of you. There's no way he'll stick to that for the hour and a half or however long he talks. And I bring that all up because we're going to talk about that speech and the resonant points, the things that uh, concern people about what he had to say on tomorrow's show uh, along with all of the uh, state and local news that we uh, address on most days here on Political Rewind. So uh, thank you for all of you for being on with us today. Thank you for listening. We're back tomorrow at 2.